Welcome to Islam for Christians. This is episode 99, Islamic History, 624, The Battle of Badr, Part 2. The two sides in the Battle of Badr, they came to the battlefield with extremely different attitudes and different motivations. And you can see this before the battle even begins, because the night before the Battle of Badr, the actions of the two camps, it's almost like something out of a sports movie. You can almost hear the music as the training montage begins, and the movie is showing you how the two sides are training. I think the most famous scenes, at least of this genre, are from the famous Rocky movies. Uh, for instance, the original. If you've seen it, you know, Rocky goes running through the streets of Philadelphia and that famous song is going and he's trying hard now and he runs up the streets, uh, runs up the, through the streets and up the steps and he's waving his hands and his fists in the air. He believes he can do the impossible at this point and he's putting in the work. And it's because he's putting in the work that he believes he really can go the distance. And the Muslims, no doubt, were rocky in this scenario. Because going into the battle, they were certainly underdogs. If I were a modern odds maker going into the battle, I'd have listed the Muslims as underdogs for sure. Maybe as much as 10 to 1, you know, give, give or take a few. Maybe somewhere from 5 to 1 on the extreme end to 15 to 1. It would be somewhere in that range. But that would be just from looking at this matchup on paper. But, as sports movies teach us, and reality too, the game is not played on paper. And like I said, the training montage is a great way of demonstrating that. It, you know, in a film. So in terms of Rocky movies, just to kind of set the scene here, to give you something you can relate to, to understand this battle through, let's focus on two scenes from the Rocky movies, which demonstrate the real contrast between these two sides um, and help us look at the strength and the uh, vulnerabilities of each. The first one I want to focus on is the fourth one, Rocky IV. Now, that's the one where Rocky goes to Russia to fight Drago, who was the giant, almost robotic villain who killed Rocky's friend. Of course, the training montage from this film is pretty fantastic. There are multiple ones, actually. If you want to see this, just search for Rocky IV training montage. In this, Rocky is up in the Russian mountains, some isolated rural place, training in a natural way, building up his body and his spirit. Drago, on the other hand, is in a modern gym, and he's training only his body. The same goes with these two armies at Badr. The Muslims are Rocky. They're training body and soul. They're hustling to get there first. 
and they're emboldened by the kind of morale you can only get with a belief in the cause, a belief in the, you know, the spirit of the battle, the reason for the battle. Their hearts were on fire, like Rocky. But the Meccans, on the other hand, they were entirely reliant on physical strength. In this case, the sheer number of their combatants. They were strong, but they had no heart, like Drago. And the other scene I want to emphasize is less remembered, but it's important. This is from the original, the 1976 Rocky movie. If you have it, this scene can be found around the 122 to 125 mark. Not a minute, an hour, 22 minutes, or an hour, 25 minutes. Around that time. Rocky is training by literally pounding meat carcasses in a freezer. And this is being shown on the TV during a news program. Because obviously, the reporter found this quite interesting. And Apollo's trainer is looking at this, and he says, Hey, Apollo, you may want to see this. But he doesn't care, because Apollo is too busy with the business side of things, obsessing over the money that is going to be brought in by this whole stunt, at least as he sees it. Again, the Muslims are rocky, deadly serious, pounding dead meat in a freezer. And the Meccans are Apollo rich, distracted, and increasingly soft. You can see these contrasts in the night before the battle, because what do the Muslims do? They rest, they live clean, and sleep is easier with a sober mind and a heart emboldened by faith. The Muslims spend the night preparing their gear, and preparing their minds and bodies with prayer and sleep. They will wake up refreshed, confident, energetic. What did the Meccans do during the night? Well, they brought dancing girls with them to this battle. They watched the show, ate and drank, and basically partied all night. In any sports movie, this is the perfect recipe for an underdog to triumph. So, why were the Quraysh so cavalier about this whole thing? You know, when I think of a battle, I'd be scared out of my wits the night before, because you're staring down what is almost surely a bloody mess, and you will be in great danger. But the reason, at least one major reason, they acted this way is... I'm not so sure they were expecting a battle to take place. Either that or they had forgotten or just never knew that real, actual battle was not a romantic thing. It was and is an ugly enterprise. And perhaps they didn't quite get this because they looked great. They had these spectacular weapons. but. Mentally, they were more like people going to a historical reenactment of a battle than an actual battle. And 
maybe this helped to override their obvious physical deficiencies that many of them have. Um, the Muslims, and particularly the Medinan natives, they were tougher, younger, and probably more skilled than the Meccans. Not that all the Meccans were, you know, fat old men or anything, but many were. And the Meccans were a hastily assembled group of inexperienced fighters with plenty of old and out of shape men. But still, they persisted. Again, why such a gung-ho attitude from the Quraysh here? For the historically minded, this situation might remind people of the European attitude during the lead-up to World War I. And in this case, the role of the Kaiser was being played by Abu Jal. If you've ever looked deeply into World War I, from our vantage point, here, 100 years later, looking at the actions of the Kaiser and his Prussian military men, frankly, he looks completely insane. Off the walls, nuts. You think, just keep putting yourself in the Kaiser's head, and you think, Really? The plan is to take France in a few weeks, a few months at most, and then turn on Russia and win? What if something goes wrong, as it always does? It's even more stunning that, for the most part, this was a battle of choice. The Kaiser and his generals, they were the attacking side. They made this choice. They weren't even in any danger. They just decided to do it. And this wasn't like World War II, where the Germans overran France while they were at peace with Russia, you know, one at a time. This would have been a simultaneous war. Well, it, and it would be. This would have to be a simultaneous war to overrun France before the Tsar gets his forces together and then head east to fight the Russians. Now, that's insane, particularly given 1914 technology. And again, they did this voluntarily, believing it was their moment. No wonder the Allies blamed the whole thing on the Kaiser, or whoever was making the decisions at the time. Because from the outside, it looked completely bonkers. So how did he get into that headspace? The Kaiser, I mean. How did he get into this way of thought how did his advisors get into this weird area where they thought that was not only possible of course it was possible but where they thought it was prudent well the exact same way abu jal got into that headspace by overriding the executive functions of the brain's frontal lobe really by complete indifference to the fallout of war. Not that all the Meccans had this attitude. When the Meccans sent spies out, they assessed the numbers pretty well and noticed that Muhammad had no hidden reinforcements. And it, in a vacuum, this seems like an advantage the Meccans should press. So this wasn't totally on par with the abject 
craziness of the Kaiser here. But a more sober person would have thought not just about can I win this battle, but even if I win, what is the result going to be? If you were an ordinary Meccan, this was and should have been a sobering moment when your scouts come back and say, hey, this is happening. This is really going to happen. It meant that this fight was actually going to take place and Muhammad was deadly serious. So regardless of what the numbers were, even if they had that advantage, this was getting real. The spies reported directly, these people are ready for war. This is happening. It's not a bluff. And for more sober-minded Meccans, this led to hesitation and reflection. You could argue that the Meccans would win, but even if they did, at what cost? But on the other hand, Abu Jal saw this as a green light. His tunnel vision saw this as a green light, and he discarded the rest of the advice he was being given because others rightly saw the major problems at hand. Not the least of which is that should they really go through with this, many of these men on the other side of the battlefield, they are the family members of the Meccans. This kind of fighting could lead to a tangled web of death that could really ultimately tear apart the Quraysh back in Mecca, maybe permanently. This may sound familiar to students of World War I, because like the nobles of Europe in those days, everyone was related. And like the old European aristocracy, at least in theory, the Arabs had a whole system designed to prevent this kind of thing from spiraling out of control and just taking everyone down. However, they fight this battle, that all falls apart, or at least it could, because the whole system was set up, you know, like paying blood money to relatives, for example, it was set up to prevent an unending cycle of blood feuds. But if it got too big, I'm not sure the system could sustain it. And anyone who could see ahead even a little bit could see the gigantic, bloody mess this could unleash between the clans of the Quraysh. It could destroy the entire tribe. You think Medina had trouble with its two tribes? Imagine a single tribe potentially split into a dozen factions. This didn't happen, exactly, but they knew it was a danger, and it's something they certainly should have been thinking about. The scout did think about this. This is the one that went and saw what the Muslims were doing and saw how ready they were. And this is what that scout had to say to the tribal leaders. O people of Quraysh, I have seen camels carrying death, the camels of Yathrib laden with certain death. These men have no defense 
or refuge, but their swords. By God, I don't think a man of them will be slain until he slays one of you. And if they kill you in a number equal to their own deaths, what is the good of living after that? This scout wasn't just talking about simple casualties when he says, what is the good of living after that? This isn't about the pure numbers game. The tribe could handle a few hundred dead men. What he's talking about is all the intra-tribe and inter-clan killing that would take place. Every clan would have many, many vendettas against all the other clans. And the potential for chaos was real. An ugly descent into violence like the Quraysh had never seen. One major Qureshi leader that actually listened to the scout was named Utba ibn Rabia. Now, he took this message to heart, and he counseled against attacking Muhammad and the Muslims. This person, by the way, he's often referred to just as Utba, um, and we'll just call him that. And you should really remember that name because he will come up a lot. You know, soon he'll have a famous clash with Hamza, and you know, he was a major player. He was also the father of Abu Sufyan's wife. Yes, the same Abu Sufyan that said, hey, the caravan's safe. Come back. Um, and this relation, uh, he is the father of Hind, Abu Sufyan's wife. That will matter down the line. So just keep that in mind. This woman would lose a whole lot in the upcoming battle. So, Utba, being a bit more specific than the scout, he said this. O people of Quraysh, by God, you will gain nothing in battle with Muhammad and his companions. If you fight with him, each one of you will always be looking with loathing on the face of another man who has slain the son of his paternal or maternal uncle or some man from his family. Therefore, turn back and leave Muhammad to the rest of the Arabs. And this was very good advice from Otba, ever the sober and unprincipled pragmatist. It's really not that shocking he would have married his daughter to Abu Sufyan. They were very similar. These were sound concerns, of course. But when he heard this, Abu Jal ridiculed it as cover for cowardice, pointing out that Otba's son, who had converted to Islam, was probably on the other side among the Muslim warriors. And then, ironically, Abu Jal used the emotion of an existing blood feud to override all these concerns about future blood feuds. In other words, Abu Jal argued, the great bloodbath has already begun. You know, Utba was just unwilling to recognize it. Now, why was this? More on that in a second. Just a quick aside here. I don't want to give the impression that Abu Jal was in control of an army exactly. He was just one tribal chief of many. He's just notable because 
he was the most enthusiastic of all the Muslim haters. Participation in this battle was voluntary. They had already lost 300 men who turned back once they heard the caravan was safe. I don't want to give the idea that Abu Jal was some modern commander who could shoot deserters. Everyone was there voluntarily on both sides. But Abu Jal argued that the Quraysh were already in this thing. There was already an active blood feud going on, so why hold any, anything back? If this seems a tad dramatic, you're right. You know, so why was he arguing that the blood feud had already begun? The major motivator was a guy named Amir whose brother had been killed in the previous Muslim raid. And this person proved a very useful propaganda tool for Abu Jal. And Amir was able to shame many into actually staying and avenging his brother and whipping some people into a frenzy and sealing the decision to go ahead. So ultimately, it was this emotion that overrode the logic that the spies had come back with, and the logic of more cynical statesmen like Outba and back in Mecca, of course, Abu Sufyan. So the hotheads had won. War it was. Outba and many others were basically shamed into a fight they weren't entirely sure should even take place. And you'll see how that works out for Outba. And it was approaching a time when a decision simply had to be made because the Meccans were running out of options given their poor tactical situation. And by that, I mean the water problem. Historically, it's really hard to figure out just how big of a role thirst and dehydration played in the battle. How much water would the Meccans have had at this point? They obviously brought plenty of wine but were they really running out of water? The answer is maybe. There's no way to know, really. Perhaps they never considered the wells not being available when they sent out from Mecca. I wish I could give you something more definitive, but I haven't found it. And I'm not exactly an authority on desert warfare or desert anything, really. You know, where I am, in the Great Lakes region, we never even think about conserving water. I don't really know how much water they carried with them from place to place. And there really isn't any way to know precisely. The history of this battle is mostly pieced together from Muslim sources. And history is written by the winners, right? And the winners didn't know the Meccans' water situation, apparently. Usually, it's portrayed as a big factor that they wanted to get to the well. But I never actually see any details when it comes to that. And I've never, ever seen someone say they had such and such water or they were low on water. Perhaps I just missed it. But again, the water situation is emphasized, but I can't say definitively that it was a gigantic factor. However, it probably was. 
And that's why the histories emphasize this thing, even if they don't provide any backup details. Now, really, it's kind of common sense because should the fight be prolonged, the wells are going to be pretty important. And because the Muslims had hustled and gotten there first, the battle would revolve around this one well that Muhammad and his men were guarding. So even if the Meccans were not going to die of thirst, a lack of hydration would certainly affect performance. Just imagine a football game where one side gets to drink and the other does not. And then imagine that game was being played in the desert sun. So yeah, the well is going to be important at some point. And that's exactly where the battle begins. The two armies begin to advance toward each other. And at this point, it's not impossible the battle could be called off. Because it was, apparently, somewhat common in Arabic society that battles were averted at the last possible minute. So these battles, they tended to intensify very slowly. And we'll see this at Badr. It's not like two armies just charge each other all at once. This would involve words, then a skirmish or two, some duels, and then maybe the battle would actually take place. Of course, this seems oddly choreographed from our vantage point, but for that time and place, it was normal. Actually, you could argue that the battle itself had already begun the night before, when the Muslims shot a few Meccans who approached the well to draw water. The build-up was very, very slow. Even when the armies were almost next to each other, it was just proceeding at a glacial pace. And in my opinion, the, the pace of the build-up was mostly due to Meccan hesitation, or at least mainly due to Meccan hesitation. This is just speculation, of course. You know, whether conscious or unconscious, the knowledge among these people about what was being unleashed here was still in the back of their mind. Now, of course, Muhammad, he had no such reservations. He was only holding back due to his superior tactical position, as in, his army's physical position at the only functioning well. So you have this, well, for almost cultural reasons, this slow battle that's going to go even slower because both sides tactically had little incentive to just charge at the other and get it over with. And keep that slow glacial pace in mind when you hear this story. Muhammad actually took the time to pray even as the Meccan army was advancing, as in praying in such a way that he briefly fell asleep. Now, if I'm in the Muslim army, I'd be a bit panicky at that point. But Muhammad awoke with good news for his people. He said that God was here with them. Gabriel was there, and he was ready for war. But like I said, the full-scale battle, it would have to wait. 
The only creatures eager for the battle to actually begin were the vultures circling overhead. The humans on the ground were being a lot more patient. The Meccans did not want to charge, and the Muslims had no reason to. But the Meccans continued to advance, approaching the Muslim well, and then one man kind of got out in front of the army, ran ahead of it. This man was of Abu Jal's clan, and he swore that he would either drink from the well or die. So he advances on the well, and Hamza, remember Hamza is Muhammad's uncle, who was kind of an alpha. He was known for hunting lions. Remember, guns didn't exist yet. That really meant something. So yeah, he was tough. So this guy says he's going to drink or die, and Hamza makes sure he dies. Hamza was the ultimate warrior of this battle. Well, maybe along with Ali, one of them. But Hamza was clearly a leader, if not the leader. There's a reason he got top billing in the old movie The Message, and was playing, he was played by the film's biggest name, Anthony Quinn, because Hamza was enough of a leader to be important, but not so important to the overall Islamic story that you weren't allowed to show his face for religious reasons. Like Ali, you'll never see him, or Abu Bakr, or Muhammad, obviously. Okay, so this guy gets ahead of the Meccan group, and Hamza intercepts this person. This is the guy that says, I'm going to drink or die. And so the two begin a duel. Now, as we'll see in the duels of this battle, you really, really do not want to be matched up with Hamza. And Hamza makes quick work of this guy, hitting his leg and then landing a second in a fatal blow. This would not be Hamza's last duel of the day. There would be several more to come before the armies go head to head. So Hamza's first kill was just another step in the slow boil, the gradual buildup, the crescendo of this battle. And it would soon reach its peak. Because this was the first duel of the Battle of Badr, a precursor to the actual battle. And it would not be the last. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Insha'Allah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.